It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? It's a neighborly day in this beauty wood, a neighborly day for a beauty. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? I have always wanted to have a neighbor just like you. I've always wanted to live in a neighborhood with you. So let's make the most of this beautiful day. Since we're together, we might as well say, "Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? Won't you please? Won't you please?" Please, won't you be my neighbor? Who grew up on Mr. Rogers? Yeah, absolutely. Oh man, what an icon! What a genuine human being. Who I remember as a child growing up, coming home and watching Mr. Rogers and watch him go through that rigmarole of changing out his jacket and putting on sneakers. I didn't. I had no idea what Mr. Rogers did. For a living, but when I saw him change clothes into some sneakers, I go, "Oh man, this old guy wants to have some fun with me, right? <laughs> He wants to be my friend. He wants to be my neighbor." And I spent so many times. I've probably watched almost every episode that at least was available to me when I was a kid of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And he gave us this word that just kind of—I mean, he didn't invent the word, but he really put it in our vocabulary of neighbor. What does it mean to be? A neighbor, which is a vital word for Christians. It's a vital word for who we are. I, I think that there's a common question for Christianity. There's a common question, and for us, the common question is: How do I get into heaven? How do I have eternal life? Before I was a senior pastor, I was a youth pastor, and so I hung out with teenagers quite a bit. And I remember asked, I asked the teenagers one time on a big trip. I said, "So, kids, how do you get to heaven?" How do you uh, how do you get eternal life, right? And the kids recited back to me. We just talked about this Bible verse. Recited, they recited back: "Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself." I said, "Yes, absolutely." And who's your neighbor? Who's your neighbor? And the kids would faithfully say, "Everyone. Everyone's my neighbor. Every person I come across, every human being out there, is my neighbor." You know, as I was studying for this sermon, as I was studying for this sermon series and what we're going to talk about all month, I'm starting to question that idea. Question that idea that everyone is my neighbor. In our scripture this morning,、uh, we heard a guy who was a legal expert. I'll call him a legal expert so that I don't offend any lawyers in the room. And this legal expert came up to Jesus, and this. This legal expert had a question, the common question: What must I do to get eternal life? And it seems to me that Jesus is super annoyed by this question. It seems to me that Jesus is not terribly interested in engaging this person. Another guy in, a, in another story, we call him the rich young ruler, came to Jesus one time and said, "Jesus, what must I do to get eternal life?" And it's almost like as you're reading the scripture, you can hear Jesus's eyes roll. He says, "Oh my goodness, this again." This does not excite Jesus. This doesn't get him excited. He says to the rich young ruler,、um, he says, "Well, what does the law say?"、Um, 
And the rich young ruler says, you know, Ten Commandments. Uh, love Lord your God and all these things. And he names the Ten Commandments. And Jesus says, yeah, you're right. Just do those things. Get out of here. I'm done with you. And the rich young ruler says to Jesus, well, um, I've been doing all this since I was a kid, so I'm good to go, right? And Jesus, I feel Jesus' frustration. He says, you know what? No, you haven't done everything. Take all your possessions, sell everything, give all of it to the poor, and then come follow me. Then you'll get in heaven. Settle down, Jesus. Why are you so mad all of a sudden, right? And, and the guy goes away sad. Why? Because I, I think Jesus sees the heart, sees the heart of this rich young ruler and says, you don't really want me. You don't really want the things that I want. You're just interested in the things that you can get. You're not really interested in the matters of faith. You're not really interested in the matters of God changing and shaping this world. You just want something for yourself. Jesus gets excited in the scriptures when he comes across people that do something audacious, when he, do, when he finds people that do something crazy, when they ask for something that's, that's astronomical. Jesus gets excited when the woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, who's been ostracized from society, when she sees him in a marketplace, she thinks to herself, I'm going to go and steal some of his power. <laughs> I'm going to go and sneak up on him, and I'm just going to touch his robe, and he won't even know, but some of that power is going to come to me, and I'm going to be healed. I'm desperate. So she does it. She sneaks through this crowd, touches Jesus' robe, gets his power, and then sneaks away, and Jesus says, whoa, 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 stop everything. What just happened? And he goes and finds the woman, says, woman, this is faith. Your faith has made you well. Another time, a Roman centurion, somebody who's not Jewish, somebody that doesn't know the God of Israel, comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, my servant is sick. Will you heal him? And Jesus says, yeah, sure, I'll go. And he gets his things put together. And then the centurion says, oh, no, Jesus, you don't have to go. Just say the word, and it'll happen. I understand. Jesus steps back, he says, are you all watching? Are you all paying attention? There is nobody in Israel that has faith like this. This is faith. Asking for something so crazy and audacious that I would just say the word and his servant would be healed miles away. This is the stuff that Jesus gets excited about. People who take action. People that do and ask for things that are bigger than what's possible. But when we come up to Jesus asking, you know, well, what do I got to do to get saved? He's not as thrilled by that question. And for American Christians, this is, man, this question of what do I got to do to get to heaven? What do I do, got to do to get saved? Um, this becomes like the top question for us sometimes. And I think it's a little bit part of our culture. We live in this culture of buying and selling and trading and, and, uh, and making sure we have fair exchanges. It's the ocean that we swim in. It's our culture. There's nothing, nothing to say about it. But sometimes we look at Christianity through that lens. And we think Christianity is all about getting something from God if we give God something. So God, what do I got to do to get into heaven? Tell me what the line is. And I'll, I'll do that. And no more usually. This 
legal expert comes to Jesus. Says, Jesus, what do I got to do to get eternal life? And Jesus says, well, I, I can tell he's bored with the conversation already. He says, what does the law say? And the legal expert says, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you got it. Way to go. Do this and you'll live. See you later. But the legal expert wants more. The scripture says he wanted to prove that he was right. He wanted justification. He wanted to show that he really knows the law. He wanted to show that he uh, is right. The legal expert wanted justification. Sometimes we want justification. We want to know that we are right. We want to prove to God and to others that we are right. And so the legal expert asked Jesus the next question. And who is my neighbor? And of course, Jesus does not answer the question directly. Instead, he tells a story, which when, I, when we talked about this in our staff meeting, a number of our staff members said that their spouses do the same thing, and it drives them nuts. But <laughs> Jesus says, here's a story. Let me tell you. Um, yeah, there's only like a handful of staff members, so I'm talking about you guys over there. <laughs> And Jesus tells a story. He says, there was a guy. There was a guy that was beaten up on the road. And he was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. It is a common road. A lot of people travel on it. It's one of the reasons why it's so dangerous, because this is where thieves and robbers would hang out to take people down. They knew there would be traffic there. So there was a man, and, and the inevitable happened, and he was robbed. He was beaten. They took his clothes, they took his money, and they left him to die on the side of the road. Well, there's other people on this road. Like I said, it's a busy road. And so next comes a priest, someone who has devoted their life to the religious institution, has devoted their life to talk to the people about God, to talk to God about the people, to oversee sacrifices, to care for people's heart issues. This is somebody who's given their lives for this work. But maybe this priest was busy. They got to get to Jericho quick. Sees this guy on the side of the road. Says, whew, I do not have time for that. I am way too busy for this. So he crosses the road on the other side and, and continues on. Next comes a Levite. A Levite was somebody who was born into the work of serving the people of Israel. By heritage, by blood, a Levite was destined to not own property for themselves, but to share everything they have and to give, some, give everything to the people of Israel, to be like a priest, to oversee the religious function of the temple. By blood, this was his job. And so the Levite sees the man that was beaten up and says, Whew, I am too busy for this. I don't want any part of this. This is going to eat up a whole day, I can tell. So he crosses on the other side of the road. Now a Samaritan comes. The Samaritan is the group of Israelites that live in the area of Samaria, and they were looked down upon because they were northern Israelites. And the reason why the southern Israelites looked down on the northern Israelites, the northern Israelites started to intermarry with other nations around them. So they didn't have the pure blood. They weren't pure blood Israelites anymore. They had intermarried, and, and through generations after generations after generations, they were looked at as a totally different race. 
that you've abandoned God, you've abandoned your people, and you are not like us anymore. And so the Jewish people looked down on the Samaritan people. They wouldn't, they wouldn't congregate with them. They wouldn't associate with them. They wouldn't talk with them. They were lower than dirt for the Jewish people. You gave up on our people. You intermarried. You don't belong to us anymore. So a Samaritan, someone like this, was walking down that road as well. And a Samaritan sees the man that's beaten up. We don't get any sort of idea of what the race of this man was, what religion he was. We just see that he was a man in need. And the Samaritan picks him up, clothes him, puts him on his donkey. Scripture says that he tended to his wounds with oil and wine. Where do you put wine in that situation, I wonder? <laughs> they took care of him, took him into the next town, and went to the innkeeper. The scripture says that he gave the innkeeper two full days' wages. He didn't pay for just two nights' stay. He gave him two days' wages, right? So that's going to last them maybe a week. And he says to the innkeeper, take care of him. Give him whatever he wants. If this money is not enough, I'm going to come back this way, and um, I'll pay for the whole tab, whatever it takes. You make sure that this guy gets well, and I'll pay for the whole thing. And he does so. And then Jesus ends his story, and he says, now, who do you think was a neighbor? And the guy said, the one who gave him mercy. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Now, back to that question of who is my neighbor? I think sometimes we think, um, when we talk about neighbor, John Wesley said, the world is my parish. And, and when I talked to those teenagers those years ago, they said, everyone is my neighbor. But I don't think that that's what this story is telling us. When the, when the legal expert says to Jesus, who's my neighbor, he doesn't say everyone. He doesn't say everyone you come across. He tells a very specific story about this good Samaritan. I think sometimes as Christians, we start to think that loving your neighbor means to feel nicely towards everyone. I want to tell you today that Jesus doesn't want you to feel nicely towards everyone. He wants you to love your neighbor. He wants you to love your neighbor. In the book, The Art of, of Neighboring, there's a couple of pastors in Denver, and they got together, and, and their churches were doing pretty good. They were growing, and so they got uh, a time with the mayor of Denver, and they talked with the mayor of Denver, and, and they were saying, what can we do with our communities? What can we do from our pulpits? What can we do with our churches to meet real needs in Denver? And so the mayor and these pastors started spitballing a little bit. They started discussing some of the issues, some of the crimes, some of the drug addiction problems, um, broken lives, broken homes situations. And then the mayor just kind of shot from the hip and said, you know what would really solve most, if not all, of our problems? If people just knew what was going on in their neighbors' lives. If people just kind of knew what was happening in the door next, in the house next door to them. If people were involved in could check up on their neighbors, that would really change some things. These pastors said, oh, you mean like do what Jesus said? Love your neighbor? And they were blown away. They thought, the city is crying out for people to know and love their neighbors. And here we are as Christians. This is the 
first commandment. I mean, it's the, the top two commandments. Love your neighbor. These pastors, uh, they write in their book that we don't think that we're, we're called to absolutely love everyone. They say when we aim for everyone, we often end up hitting no one or nothing. The quotes in your sermon notes and stuff on the screen. So these pastors go back to their churches, and they give all their, their congregants a little piece of paper with nine squares on it, and they say, imagine your house is the middle square, and then the other eight squares are the doors that are closest to your door. And he said, think about it. Can you name the names of all your eight neighbors, the ones that are closest to you? Just even one of their names. And they gave this out to their congregation. I want you to think about that. Think of the eight homes that are closest to you. So the one across the street from you, the, the homes on either side, the one behind you, and the ones on the corners. Your eight closest neighbors, the ones whose doors are closest to your front door. Do you know their names? I don't want to shame you this morning or make you feel bad because when these pastors did this with their congregation, only 3% of their congregations knew their neighbors' names knew their closest neighbors' names. They don't know their neighbors. When Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan to say, to answer the question, who is my neighbor? I don't think Jesus is saying everybody is their neighbor. How do we know that the Samaritan was a neighbor? How do we know, why, are, why would we call these people neighbors? Let's think about what they shared in common. What did the man who was robbed have in common with the priest and the Levite and the Good Samaritan? They didn't have the same gender, or uh, they, they did have the same gender, sorry. Ah, they didn't have the same race. They didn't have, uh, they were from different races. They didn't have the same religion. They didn't have the same socioeconomic status. What did these three people have, or four people have in common? They were in each other's way. They were on the same road. This is what a neighbor is. It's somebody who is in your way. It is somebody who is on your road. Who does God keep putting in your way? That's what Jesus is saying. That's who Jesus is saying to love. This person that is in your way, this is your neighbor. This person that's on your road, this is your neighbor. Who are the people that are in your way? That's who God has given you to love. Church, I can't love your neighbor. They're not in my way. They're not in my road. I'm not called to take care of your neighbor the way that you are called. God didn't put me there, and God didn't put them in my life in that way. Likewise, you're not called to love my neighbor in that way. You're not called to take care of my next-door neighbor. They weren't put in your way. They were put in my way. Church, I don't think the call of Christians is to feel nicely towards everyone. I think the call of Christians is for each of us to love our neighbors. And when they are loved, they will, when we all love our neighbors, all neighbors will be taken care of. That's the call. This is your neighbor, the person that is in your way, the person that is on your road, the person that you share life and moments with, the people that you share a grocery store with, the people that you share a library with, the people that you share a school with. These are your neighbors. God has put them in your way. So what is love? Love is not feeling nicely. The Good Samaritan did not merely feel nicely towards the man beaten up on the road. That's not what makes 
the story remarkable? The story is remarkable because the Good Samaritan took his entire day. Whatever he was doing that day, it's, it's over. His whole plan was canceled for this one guy. The, the Good Samaritan story is remarkable because he, gave, he sacrificed himself. He sacrificed his time. He sacrificed his money. He got his hands dirty with this man's blood and with dirt. Put him on his donkey, paid for his stay at the inn. This is love. Jesus doesn't want you to feel nicely towards everyone. He wants to, you to love your neighbor. Now, it's difficult because in my neighborhood anyway, um, I don't have it as easy as the Good Samaritan. Good Samaritan had it real easy. He came across to somebody who was blatantly hurt. It was so obvious that this guy needed some help. It was so obvious that the Good Samaritan could do something. It's not as obvious in my neighborhood. I don't, I don't know. Maybe my neighborhood's different, but in my neighborhood, we all are pretty good at looking good. We're all pretty good at hiding our hurts, hiding our pains, hiding our dysfunctions. So it's not real obvious how I can help and how I can serve my neighbor. It's not like it was obvious for the Good Samaritan. So what does it take from us in our culture, in our neighborhoods? The first step is just to know our neighbors. Learn their names. Know who they are. Get a foot in the door of their lives. Share some stuff together. Over this next month, we're going to spend some time talking about how can we get to know our neighbors more. We are going to practice. I'll give you some practical steps. There will be baby steps. It will ask you to to do some crazy things in your neighborhood. It'll ask you, I'll ask you to do some things that make you feel uncomfortable so that you are seen in your neighborhood, so that you can know your neighbors. Because, like I said, we got to take extra steps to care and love our neighbors because we have fences. We have garage doors. It is harder to see the need in our neighborhoods, but I promise you, church, there is need in the neighborhood. And God has put you in the way of others so that you can love them. We're not called to feel nicely towards everyone. We are called to love our neighbors. This morning, the action steps are pretty simple. The first one is um, when we come in and have communion, on the way back to communion, you'll see some maps on the walls. And all I want you to do this morning is I just want you to take a pin, and I want you to pin where your house is on these maps, okay? There's a narrow map, and there's a wide map. So um, for those of you that are on the narrow map, find your pin on, on the closer-in map to the church. Um, find your house and put a pin in. And I just want you to look around. Think about your neighbors. Think about the people in that area. So... And then this week, I'll go through and I'll make all the maps match from the first service and the second service, and we're going to start to see where our neighbors are who worship with us. And then, second thing, action step, I want you to pray for the person whose door is closest to your door. I don't even want you to pray for all eight of your neighbors. I just want you to pray for the one that's closest, and I don't know where that is. It might be to the side of your house, it might be across the street, it might be behind you. But just that one person. And if you don't know their name, that's okay. You can, you can pray for people whose names you don't know. But just pray for them, right? And, um, 
And then the last thing I want you to do is I want you to think about the person that God keeps putting in your way. I don't know if this happens to you, but every now and then, I'll run into a person, and then I'll just keep running into that person time and time again. I'm like, what is going on here? Well, if that starts to happen to you, maybe take a moment and say, okay, why is God putting this specific person in my way? Why, why am I called to be a neighbor to this person right here, right now? Think about that person and pray about what you are called to do and what love looks like in this situation. I usually write my sermons on Mondays, and, um, and then I, I get the sermon notes in to be printed on Tuesdays. And so this last, um, this last Monday, I wrote the sermon, um, and then... Monday night, my neighbor who was to an angle of us, uh, his mom passed away. And we heard about it from our neighbor next to us. And we heard, and um, they were bringing over some wine and desserts, and we went over and asked how we could help and, and just be supportive and just be present to them. We don't know that neighbor that well, but we know enough of each other a little bit. We see each other in our front yards, and, and we... Um, we have kids that are similar ages. And so on Wednesday, that neighbor called and asked and said, Rick, um, we don't really go to church, and we're going to have a service, and the funeral home has this pastor that we don't know, but would you do the service? I said, sure, absolutely. You know I'm a Christian pastor, so I'm going to pray to Jesus, and I'm going to talk a little bit about life and death and give you some hope as well. He said, that's exactly what we need right now, right? So on Tuesday, I'm going to do a service for my neighbor's mom, and it's opened a door for me to share a little bit about Jesus. Now, I can do that because I'm a pastor, and I know how to be a pastor, and I'm called to be a pastor of this church, but I'm also a pastor to my neighbor's. I don't know what you do, and I can't do the things that you do. But maybe God is calling you to do the things that you do for your neighbors. You guys can't, I mean, maybe you can be a pastor, but I don't know. <laughs> but I can do things that I'm called to, that I'm created for. And they are different from the things that you are called to do and created for. So how is God calling you to be used in your neighborhood? 